Hi, I'm Jeff Hewitt. Uh, I've been working on a short poem, a haiku, and I thought I'd read it to you. We're here at Elmore State Park, enjoying a very quiet morning, 8.30 in the morning. The beach is still empty. And here it is. Smart-ass butterfly pretends the wind is blowing where he wants to go. Smart-ass butterfly pretends the wind is blowing where he wants to go. Smart-ass butterfly pretends the wind is blowing where he wants to go. Welcome to The Portable Humanist, the podcast where you can listen to Vermont Humanities Talks and learn when you're on the go. I'm Ryan Newswanger. Jeff Hewitt is Vermont's reigning poetry slam champion, and he regularly hosts slams throughout the state. He's the author of four books of poems and three books for teachers. We recently joined Jeff at Elmore State Park for our first Words in the Woods event. The series allows Vermonters and visitors to enjoy our state's natural beauty while listening to and reading literature in the outdoors. But due to COVID-19, we decided to record Jeff solo and offer the event as a video and as this podcast episode. If you'd like to watch the video, which includes a short writing workshop, you can find it at vermonthumanities.org digital. Now back to Jeff and his haiku. So I'm wondering whether I can revise this into something that has a sharper feeling. I still like that first line, smart-ass butterfly. Makes it seem the wind blows where he wants to go. Eh. Or what if I just ignored the five seven five syllabic structure and just went for a different feeling smart ass butterfly the wind shoves him and he shoves back to me that feels a little bit more like the traditional japanese even though it doesn't fit the syllabic pattern that we in the united states like to impose on our haiku. You know, form, the actual form of 575 is valuable because it forces you to hone the language. And yet, once it's honed, sometimes you want to let go and free it up and go back to maybe a more formless Haiku. So I define haiku as a poem that has three lines. And that's it. As a matter of fact, I define poetry as any writing where the author, not the typesetter, decides where to end the lines. Poetry? Fine art form. Poems? Objects, gifts, something one can give away. And whatever you write, if you call it a poem, even if you're letting the typesetter decide where to end the lines, 
to me, that's where it's at. So here's a poem I wrote that is a prose poem. I call it a poem because I wrote it. I can do whatever I want. The typesetter decides where to end the lines on this poem. It's a winter poem. You got to flip your mind a little bit towards winter. So I was coming around the corner and the car ahead of me has stopped and I'm on sheer ice and my car starts to skid and there's this guy on the sidewalk with a shovel. And just before my car crunches into the car ahead of me, he throws a shovel full of sand under my rear tires and my car comes to a stop. 10 feet from disaster. Half an hour later, I'm at the Xerox machine with a job I've got to have copied in time for the mail, which leaves in 10 minutes and the machine jams. And I'm trying to get the paper out and something throws a spark. So smoke is starting to curl from the ink drum and I'm trying to figure whether I should run to the men's room for a handful of water when this guy appears with a shovel, throws a shovel full of sand into the machine's underbelly, and the smoking stops. I think the most fun for me in writing that poem and in revising it was breaking the rules of common English grammar. Poem starts out in the present tense or present perfect. So I was past perfect, excuse me. So I was coming around the corner and the car in front of me has stopped and I'm on sheer ice. Suddenly I'm in the present tense. This is the way conversation happens. And for me, the more conversational the poem is, the more likely it is to find a reader, or in your case, a listener. So I'm standing here carrying on about poems, and I look at the bench that I've been sitting on, and son of a gun, there's this heart rock that somebody has found on the beach and left here for others to enjoy. So, of course, I got a poem about it, not about this heart rock, but about heart rocks that I found while I was beachcombing in Maine. It's called The Perfect Heart. Scouring the beach for stones tumbled smooth, he also looks for those in the shape of a valentine. So many triangles, but most without the divot up top and rounded shoulders funneling down to a point, the perfect heart. He gathers all potential runners up, maybe 20 or 30 that in a pinch could pass for love tokens. 
but underneath sees clutter. The perfect heart awaits uncovering another tide, another season, another year. He shares the take with his wife, who spies the least likely, damaged and cockeyed like a child abused at birth, a rough approximation of what one might select, proclaiming it the one she thinks will pass. Who can forecast the choice of one with whom one has spent more than half a lifetime. Who can know another's standards for the perfect heart? It's delicate when we touch each other. A careful mistake will do, but nothing more. It's delicate to this learning how, even with degrees, no one said there'd be a job, but there is work. Oh, there is work. How many times I vacuum each week is a measure of unemployment, though vacuuming is nothing I do for enjoyment. I want me one of them Riding vacuums, metallic green with special bumpers so I don't mar the furniture as I'm whizzing the room, caroming off the pillars of the old upright piano and making the long run down the hall, wearing the safety helmet that came with the unit and wielding the magic wand attachment at cobwebs as I glide by. Cobwebs, don't make me think of them. Let me picture a spider's more symmetrical effort, not the chaotic gathering of dust in strands that hang from ceilings. Let me think of spider webs, the organization of desire. A spider's fractal-like construction to ward off starvation. A sticky silver trampoline with plenty of space to fly through. Just avoid the setter, claims the stupid moth that fouls the whole web and isn't anything the spider wants. Just a dusty pair of wings fluttered to a mealy core the cobweb of the animal world. Not to speak of the damaged web to rebuild for, though resilient, a spider web is delicate. And delicate is like touch, like love, like learning, like the finest most expensive, tiniest chocolate you're only supposed to have one of. So I like that poem because it breaks the rules. It ends with a preposition. It has 
I want me one of them riding vacuums, agrammatical. And it starts out, you just think you're in for it. You think you're in for poetry. It's delicate when we touch each other, a careful mistake we'll do. It's delicate, this love we carry. Come on, let's get to the vacuum cleaner and the moth. So here at Elmore State Park, we found this stream and when I looked at it, I thought, oh, I'm glad I brought my stone gathering poem with me because this reminds me of Katie's Falls in Enosburg, Vermont, where for many years I played in the water and with my neighbor, John Cote, appropriated a whole bunch of stones, large river rocks, loaded them into his pickup, and he built it, built those stones into a chimney for his then new house. So afterwards, I reflected on that experience and wrote Stone Gathering for John Cote. These marks in stone, these pocks were forced into its surface when some ancient rain lost its juice to stopped momentum and saved its shape, splatting by pure luck into rock that hadn't hardened yet. Then the river played its part to roll the stone, to smooth and to protect the finished rock. You say, pick flat ones only, and the big are best. It means less work. A snail falls off the one I'm working from the stream bed, given up its home, losing suction, gone back to the brook, perhaps to find another stone. I heave the snail's ex-home up onto the bank and sit on it, and there decide this rock of every century in the house you built will brace someone whose hand feeling the work stopped where the notion struck. It's shaped as much by heaven's gentle water as by men who build it into walls. You know, that's a very poetic poem. It kind of calls to mind the first lines of that delicate poem that I read. It's delicate when we touch each other, a careful mistake. That ending, it's shaped as much by heaven's gentle waters as by men who build it into walls. But I wrote it 35 years ago. And back then I was trying to be poetic. Now I think a poem works better 
if it surprises within its own being. Here's, well, we're really dealing with visual poems, given that we're constrained by the fact that we have visual images. Want to bring in other images, but 80% of Americans' experience is visual. 80%. That is to say that we are much more in the visual world than the world of our other senses. Where did I get that 80%? Rod Ruth, a visual artist and illustrator who was very active in the 70s and 80s. So here's a visual poem, if you're willing to think of it as visual. It's called Valentine. I have always loved those tiny specks that float within my eyes at bedtime, eyelids dropping, window shades unveiling. What was there all day, but all rolled up, couldn't see and the unrolling lids reveal, or is it darkness lets us see? What we never acknowledged in the sun or universe of feeling like my love for these curious little floaters. They come and go and sometimes merge into faces like tonight. A dozen of them converged into JFK, riding the limousine with the top down. That smile, a close-up on the lips, then drifting apart, they scattered to the edges. That's not poetry, but I think it's a poem. That's poet Jeff Hewitt reading and talking about his poetry at Elmore State Park for our Words in the Woods series. Thanks for listening to The Portable Humanist. Visit our website at portablehumanist.org for a transcript of this episode and for more information about Vermont Humanities.